Welcome to this episode of Community Matters Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss issues important to managing and governing condos, cooperatives, and homeowner associations. My name is Tony Campisi, Executive Director of the Keystone Chapter of Community Associations Institute. Today's topic is likely something no one ever wants to have to deal with, let alone discuss or listen to in a podcast. But it's a reality that some of us may confront at some point. So what exactly is trauma or crime scene cleanup? What does it involve and who does it? We'll be talking about this topic in today's episode of Community Matters Podcast. My guest for this episode is Jackie Weston Silveri, CDMP PCM with Eastern Diversified Services, commonly known as EDS. Before we get to our topic today, here's a brief word from our sponsor, Hoffman HOA Law. I'm Ed Hoffman with Hoffman Law LLC. Hoffman Law LLC is a recognized leader in community association law. We're known for our responsiveness, legal acumen, leadership in the association industry, and our unwavering focus and commitment to education. You can learn more about us at our website, hoffmanhoalaw.com. Hoffman Law LLC is proud to sponsor this episode of the Community Matters Podcast. Jackie, welcome to Community Matters Podcast, and please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your company. Hi, Tony. Thanks so much for having me on today for your podcast. Um, You wanted to hear a little about myself. Well, I'm Jackie Silveri. I'm from EDS, Eastern Diversified Services, and I'm the Director of Marketing. We provide property restoration for the Southeastern PA, New Jersey, and portions of Delaware. Um, A little bit about myself. Well, first and foremost, I am a proud mom of five children. They're a lot older now, now 20 to 27 years old, three boys, two girls. I'm also a caregiver for my dad. He lives with us. He's about to celebrate his 90th birthday, so it's pretty awesome. And in my free time, I enjoy getting outside, doing some physical activities. This year, I'm actually training for an Ironman race. So there's a lot of time you spend in training, swimming a couple miles, biking for about 60 miles, and you have to be able to run a half marathon at the end. So it's a lot of work, but it's pretty awesome. And I think the training might actually be more of the growth process than the race, but getting to the starting line is a huge goal for me for this year. So and as I mentioned, I don't my think I could do that. I'm so sorry. Said, you don't, don't think, think you could, could do, do that. that? So more power to you, Jackie. <laughs> Thank you. I think if you put your mind to something and you break it down into small pieces, even just regular goals, if you said career goals of things you're looking for, I just find if you start to look at something, you go, oh my gosh, I'm I'm never getting through this. But as you break it down, oh, for a quick example, I'm in the 60 day, it's called 60 day deliberate discomfort challenge. It's a whole bunch of military people to tell you the truth. But me, I may be literally the wimpiest person in the group. When they first sent the stuff out, I thought, oh, what did I sign up for? I don't even know a lot of these weightlifting things they have and such. But as you start to look at it, you break it down into how it's going to fit in your day. And part of the day is two hours of one hour cardio, one hour weightlifting. And you have to have everything done, your book reading, the masterclass, all that has to be done by midnight. That's a lot to cram into a day where you're already working and stuff. So when you break it down, it's pretty cool. So But as for my career work, it's a kind of an interesting thing because as I've been at EDS now for quite a while, it's the job I really didn't think I wanted. And when I first came in for the interview, I was like, it's a dirty jobs company. This is so not me or my personality. But here I am starting in year 10. 
I love the job. I love that we have the opportunity to help people in what can really be the most devastating or traumatizing time of their life, whether they've lost their house to a fire or someone crashes into their office building. It's a facilities manager who's, you know, having his worst day of his career. Those are the things where it's good to be able to help someone out. So, Jackie, you have some designations after your name, CDMP and PCM. Can you explain to our listeners what those designations stand for? Sure. They're both marketing related. And the first one is a certified digital marketing professional. The other one is a professional certified marketer. I signed into the, I got them both. I earned them through the Digital Marketing Institute about three years ago, I suppose it was. It was a rigorous program, but was worth every bit of time I put into it. You get the designations, of course, at the end, but there's so much growth from that because you learn so much more about current topics. I mean, you know, as you know, as you go through your career, you've already been through college. It's just good to keep learning and keep your skills up. So that's why I did it. That's great. You're, you're right. There's always something to learn. Right. Um, so let me ask, when a, when a company such as yours, EDS, is called to provide remediation services for a trauma scene, what exactly does that include? What type of cleanup? are we talking about? Ah, well, in a trauma scene, it's sometimes specifically referred to as a crime scene, but it really just depends on the situation. So this could include a homicide, it could be a suicide, but oftentimes you'll find that coming to a trauma scene is really, it's an accidental death. It could be an unattended death where a lot of times you'll see an elderly person or someone who is more of a, a recluse that they live alone and they don't have family. Those types of people, if they pass away, they're never outside the home and people don't know they're missing, not for a while. So there's all different types of those types of crime scene cleaning and trauma cleaning that we encounter. So I understand that crime scene cleaning industry has grown quite a bit over the last few years. Can you elaborate on that? You are so correct, Tony. The these statistics to me, it's, it's astounding when you look at it, but I guess in line with other things that have happened, when you look at the uptick in cleaning and restoration, like the crime scene cleaning, there is about a 97% increase. And that's just over the past five years. So that increase really creates more of a need for this type of cleaning, obviously. And it happens in both residential and commercial facilities. Jackie, is that because there's just an increase in crime or, or, you know, what's, what's the reason for the, the big increase? One of the things that you really see and hear about it almost seems daily now are these active shooter incidents. So when those happen, police will call a remediation company to the scene to take care of it. Yeah, I was afraid you were going to say that. It's a yeah. sad commentary, but it is reality, right. unfortunately, today. So true. So who exactly does the cleanup? Well, first, let me say it will not be me. And I'll tell you that the technicians that are there to do the cleaning at crime scenes or trauma scenes, they need a lot of specialized training in order to properly remediate the site. Obviously, you don't want someone in there who is not wearing the right um, equipment as far as gloves or a bio suit or something. And you don't want someone who's going to partially clean something up. So really, depending on the situation, a type of cleaning like this could take as little as a few hours or it could run the course of several days or longer, depending on what it is. So the cleaning, when you do cleaning, it, it really, I say this, it's really not for everyone, but you do need that complete training so that you can safely remediate a situation. What traits would you say are important in a person who would be a crime scene cleaner? Hmm. 
Well, personally, I would say you really need to be very compassionate. You obviously need to have a strong stomach and you need to have the ability to really just detach yourself from the situation just so that you're able to clean without thinking too hard about what, what you're doing. I hate to put it that way, but it's true. Um, while these kinds of cleanings, they can be heart-wrenching, especially when you see surviving family members. I've been at, on site for a few of these where someone that has lived through the trauma or is someone who's come in to take care of their deceased family or whatever might be the situation. I mean, it can be very challenging, but I would say that the positive here essentially is you're coming in to help a family or even a business on what could be the worst day of their life. And it's good that you're there to help navigate them through a process that you're already familiar with. So I guess discretion is also key here. You don't want someone who's going to share what's a very personal private situation for some people. So discretion is huge. And I'll tell you two quick stories. One, I had a, it was an assisted living facility and someone, a resident there had committed suicide and it was in a offshoot, like a stairwell area. And after they were, our group went in and did the cleaning, they actually called to thank us to say that if you didn't know, you wouldn't know what was happening there that day. They were very discreet. They came in. They went to their location. They didn't hang out talking to people. They didn't discuss the situation in the hallways. You know, they did what they needed to do and they left. And I would say another one is we had a situation once that was in a residence and, you know, everyone has, I don't want to say nosy, but you are looking because something happens in your neighborhood. You're very curious and people are by nature people can be very curious. So we really did work hard to wrap everything before it came out of the house so that nothing will traumatize anyone who might be looking when they shouldn't be. So you really have to think about that discretion and not walk around and sit in the cafe down the street and discuss it with someone. I mean, there are those things you really have to think about. It's mostly common sense, but you just have to remind yourself, don't do that. (laughs) Sure. Right. It is common sense. Hopefully it's common sense. Yeah. So we're we're talking about community associations here. What can a what can a community manager do to prepare in the event that something like this would occur at one of their associations or one of their buildings? So Tony, if there's one thing that I do tell everyone is that preparation is key. You really want to be ready for whatever type of incident might occur at your property. So prepare before anything happens in the hope that it will never happen, but at least you'll be ready because the last thing you want to be doing is scrambling around in the midst of an emergency trying to figure it all out. We actually had a client who had a truck. It was a not a commercial truck, but a vehicle that crashed into their building. And the facilities director told me later that in that moment, he just stood there and thought to himself, 30 years I've been doing this job and I have no idea what to do. He was just, I think he was in shock to tell you the truth. But there are those moments where if you have all that preparation done, half your battle is over. If you know who to call, half your, you know, you're at least you're getting somewhere. When you're standing there, you take a lot of chance on what to do next, what to do next, you know. And is that something that a company like yours, a restoration company, can help with drawing up, you know, a written plan so they have it on file, they can rehearse it and be ready in the event they need it? Yes. What we do is we don't actually write up a plan like that, but we coach you on how to get things ready, what types of things you should be looking out for, setting yourself for, you know, every community is going to be different in, in an apartment situation or a community 
you'll have one way, but a facilities manager at a large high rise would have different things in his plan. So, but the general sense of you should be looking to do these things is common, you know, something that I would go over with someone, sure. So what 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 are the steps that a community manager should do to make sure they are prepared? Well, what I would say is, you know, I mean, I think we've been talking about some of these things, but you never know. You could have a mass flooding. You could have a tornado. There's any type of thing to come through. You can't really predict every possible scenario that might happen, but you should get some kind of a start. And, and then those beginning steps are start thinking about the types of things that might happen in your area. If you're in an area that has a lot of tornadoes, that would be something high on your list. Whereas somewhere else might say, we've never had a tornado. I may think about that on the back burner, but I'm not going to make that my biggest thing. My biggest thing might be snow that might cause a roof to collapse or something, a different whole different type of an emergency. So um, so the first thing you want to do is start thinking about how, you know, who you're going to get to handle to clean up this mess. Who is going to do it? Who will put your whole place back together to do the reconstruct? You have to think about, is there going to be a mass evacuation? What types of communication are you going to have in place? You really have to do your research. Check out several different contractors. Ask loads of questions. This is not the time to say, oh, I took your information. Thanks very much. This is the time to start asking a lot of questions. Get your vetted contractor in place so you are not the one at the emergency scene scrambling around trying to figure out what the heck you should be doing. So check their references. Ask all the questions you feel you need. Get a copy of their insurance certificate. What number would you have to call if there was an emergency? Are they a 24-7 company? Are they open on holidays? How fast on average, you know, a lot of times we put, oh, I can be there in 10 minutes. Let's be real. Some people are getting out of bed in the middle of the night. Some people are coming from a different job that could be an hour away from where they need to go. So you just want to get an idea of how long it would take someone to arrive on scene. Does the contractor work with your insurance company? Will they provide the mitigation and the reconstruction or will they just take care of the initial emergency work, and then you'll have to find an entirely different contractor to complete it. That's an important thing you want to think about because then you're working with two different contractors at minimum. So that that's where it can get, we, at EDS, we do everything. So we'll come in and do the emergency work and then we'll put everything back together as well. So you do also have to provide your community with updates because when you think about no, no one wants to be the one standing around making assumptions or their residents making assumptions about what could be happening. So communication is always key. So that reduces people's anxiety and it, it eliminates those rumors or at least reduces the rumors of what could be going on. So, Jackie, you recently wrote an article for our, our magazine, Community Assets, and in that you mentioned the importance of practicing your emergency plan. Um, is that is that reality? Do you think most people do rehearse and practice their plans for such an event? No, I mean, it's my personal opinion, but when is the last time you did your fire drill in your own home? Be honest. Never. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what I'm saying. But just like in your in a commercial building, you'll have a fire, just like, like the fire drill, just like in schools. It's the same thing. But in my personal opinion, no, people will go to a lot of trouble and they'll get their plan in place and they've got all this stuff down, but then they never practiced it. So it's it's a worthless plan. They got it all together, probably put a lot of time and effort into it, and then it collects dust on the shelf. That's no good. 
You need to actually do those drills, make a plan, think about what types of things. So like I said before, you can't predict what every possible emergency situation might be, but plan for what works for your association and consider if you had any type of thing like an active shooter, a mass evacuation, if you had to do a shelter in place, what are those things that you need to practice to be ready for that? And when you run through those drills, just like anything else, the more you practice it, the more confident you become in it, just like your residents, anyone in the association, they will have more confidence in what's going on. And that helps you when you're in the moment of an emergency, your brain can connect with those things that you've practiced in the past. So I think that's very important. So, Well, thank you, Jackie. As I said at the start, this is something that hopefully most of us will never have to deal with, but some of us likely will at some point. So I want to thank you for joining me today for this episode of Community Matters Podcast. You can find more information about EDS by visiting their website at www.easterndiversified.com. And thanks once more to the sponsor of Community Matters Podcast, Hoffman HOA Law. You can find them on the web at hoffmanhoalaw.com. For more resources and best practices on managing and governing your condominium, cooperative, or homeowners association, please contact CAI or visit our website at www.caikeystone.org. Thank you for listening.